Well, comrade, what now? Straightforward conversations. That is quite <laughs> sensual. Really? I, I felt thought like it was more you were trying to... I mean, it's unsettling because you're saying it to me. But if that was the voice that you would use if you were doing, like, a perfume commercial or something. If I was or, or, like, or like an Old Spice commercial. Wooing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I was trying to do... Uh, you ever heard of that? There used to be this old show on PBS called California Gold. You ever heard of that? I do not remember that. Yeah, and uh, it's it's one of those PBS shows, and the host was this old guy. I forget what his name is. Um, Jewel Hauser, that's what it is. And he was just a heck of a dude because he, uh, I just feel like he was the kind of guy who was an ideal talk show host, especially like for public broadcasting because um, just felt like everything amazed him for whatever reason. Like there was, there was nothing, nothing mundane about anything for whatever reason. You found a way to be just enamored with everything. I found <laughs> true wonder in the regular routine things of life, huh? Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> well, Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. Yo, what's up, everybody? I'm Drew. Okay. (laughs) That was quite a pregnant pause. I don't know if you were expecting me to say anything more. I was definitely expecting you to say something, and... I never uh, know what to say after I say my name, man. You got to yeah, coach me up and, and teach me something catchy to say. Or help I, I me think, think of a joke. I don't think there's necessarily anything that we need to prepare for it. I'm, I'm a big fan of improvisation. So, you know, even when you give me nothing, you've given me everything. I feel like eight of the last ten of our episodes have probably involved me saying my name and then... You pausing and then waiting for something to, <laughs> something else to happen. So that in and of itself has probably become a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we should uh, when when people ask what our uh, topics of conversation on the podcast are, it should be comic books, uh, critique, and awkward pauses. Yeah. <laughs> exactly (laughs) if this is the uh podcast for just uncomfortable silence all around (laughs) yeah well this week we are going to continue our read-through our annual read-through or monthly read-through of deadly class by rick remender and wes craig um yeah drew you want to give the good people a what's up any information Anything to to before we jump into our our breakdowns and our discussion? Mm-hmm. So this is Deadly Class Volume Four, which is also titled "Die for Me." These issues, the issues collected in Volume Four, are seventeen through twenty-one. The trade paperback was originally released in August of twenty sixteen. 
Dudley Class is co-created by Rick Remender and Wes Craig. Rick Remender is the writer. Wes Craig is the line artist. The colorist is Jordan Boyd. The letterer and logo designer is Russ Wooten, or as we call him, Wooton of <laughs> the Wooton clan. The Wooton ain't clan. No clan. <laughs> ain't no clan like the Wooton clan. <laughs> Exactly. And might we add, he's recently started following us on Instagram, which is really cool. And, you know, if, if you happen to listen to us, Mr. Wooten, 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 um, you know, no disrespect. We're, this is all just said in fun and jest. We really do appreciate and respect your work. Mm-hmm. 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 And the editor is Sebastian Gerner. So, Deadly Class Volume 4, Die For Me. You want to start us off with issue 17 as we go through our issue by issue, I guess, recaps and commentary. Let's do it. So issue 17. In the last vol, the last volume ended with the announcement of the end of the year student project where the freshman class will have to hunt down those students designated as rats. It is a bloody free for all as bitter rivals now see their chance to strike and as so-called friends betray one another. It is an orgy of blood and violence. By the way, I've waited my entire life to have the opportunity to say that sentence, an orgy of blood and violence. (laughs) (laughs) Marcus and Petra form an alliance to decimate the psychopathic cheer squad while Shabnam and Victor form their own alliance. Stefan, one of the other rats, is almost murdered by the prep kid clique when Kendall saves him. The two are revealed to be secret lovers, <laughs> and Stefan is sent off into hiding. Shabnam approaches another student named Dan. He was Lex's best friend, and he tells him that it was, in fact, Marcus who was responsible for Lex's death. Enraged, Dan goes in search of Marcus to exact his revenge. Willie, Saya, and Billy run into Marcus and Petra. There's still a lot of bad blood between them, but Willie and Saya try to get Marcus and Petra to come with them. But in the end, it's Marcus who convinces Billy that he's only going to be safe with other rats, and Billy decides to go with them instead. Chabnam now consolidates his power using the secrets he's accumulated. To, to manipulate and coerce his way to the top. He now has his own hit squad, and they are all going after Marcus and his friends. This is a yep. pretty interesting twist on Shabnam. The, this whole time up to this point, he was kind of this weak little nerdy guy, and then in this volume, they turned him into the kingpin. Yeah, yeah. It feels like... We, we've talked about this in the past where um, we've talked about how it feels like after Harry Potter, there were a bunch of Harry Potter clones out there and Shabnam as a character seemed to be the stock loser friend that the main character befriends. And, you know, because the main character is always such a good guy, he finds the other outcasts within the school and he finds a way to befriend them and elevate them and make them better and that's why he's a hero that's why he's a good guy right so Mm -hmm. i think at the beginning of it that was kind of the expectation that they set up for you which was 
oh, Shabnam's kind of this pudgy loser and Marcus is a good guy because he's going to befriend this kid and he's going <laughs> to elevate him or whatever. But as the story's progressed, we've seen that Marcus is kind of kind of a jerk and this is the ultimate uh what's the word uh not reversal but the ultimate uh um like switcheroo or something i i forget what the term subversion subversion there we go where we 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 were expecting them to be friends and partners and you know to have this heroic arc but it turns out shabnam's a cunning ruthless bastard in his own right Hmm. yeah and yeah, is there it's, it's, is there a Shabnam type of character in Harry Potter? I I'm not actually familiar with the the stories because I've never fully read a book or watched any of the Harry Potter movies. If I was to compare him to someone, I'd compare him to um well, I was going to say not Ron, but there's this other kid, uh I forget the kid's name in Harry Potter, but he's basically kind of a punching bag for all the other kids. And by the end of the series, he ends up becoming a hero. Um, he's someone that Harry Potter doesn't necessarily see in his main uh, main group, but it, it just feels like Harry Potter, um, what's the word, kind of takes pity on him, you know? Mm, okay. But, yeah, but it's it's never a situation where he just outright rags on this kid he, he you know he so, so harry potter never took this kid to a party and, and tricked him into drinking all the dirty bong water i would say no I oh okay say no but, okay yeah. got it yeah but um yeah so that's that's the thing uh so i do think shabnam fits that sort of archetype but other than that yeah, I, I do th- I, I do think that Rick Remender does a good job of subverting our expectations and you know, instead of taking this kid and making him part of the losers club or something or where they're kind of plucky outsiders, he he shows that this kid can be just as much of a bastard as anybody else at the school. In fact, I'd say it lines up with the theme of this volume of the book, which is People go to this who go to King's Dominion. They're there for a reason. It's a school for assassins. It's a school that's training people to be murderers. Mm-hmm. What kind of person would want to go to a school like that? Yeah. What What kind of person would want to succeed at a school like that? It says something about their character, you know. Nobody. I would want to know. Exactly. Oh, and I just figured out who the kid was. Kid's name was Neville Longbottom. That was the kid in Harry Potter. He was Longbottom. He was kind of. Neville Longbottom, yeah. No wonder all the other kids made fun of him. Yeah, well, they all kind of had peculiar eccentric names. So So, there we go. Neville Longbottom is exceptionally a punchable person, though, just because just hearing the name, I think it automatically (laughs) triggers the bully instinct in any any man, you know? Like, you hear that name, you're like, oh, that guy sucks. I want to... Make sure he knows that. I think he sucks. You have bully instincts? You don't? No. 
<laughs> Man, I just left you hanging. <laughs> Make me sound like the awful person. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it's interesting how how Shabnam's whole thing manifests his his I guess I guess you could say that this chapter is his coming out party and up to this point we know that he's been a secret threat to Marcus in particular but he's been a snitch this, yeah he's been a snitch he's been accumulating secrets but we we also realize that he's been actually accumulating secrets about everyone in the school and mm-hmm. There's even scenes within this volume where he has the, he doesn't necessarily have the physical ability or the stomach to actually hurt people, but he teams up with Victor and Victor is just a total, you know, brick hit house and sociopath. So he's willing to team up with him. And there's this point in, I forget if it's this volume or another volume uh, within or this issue or another issue within this volume, but he basically says throughout time, intelligence has always teamed up with wet works. So this is the perfect fusion between the two of us. You need me as much as I need you, you know, because you're mm-hmm. the guy who's going to go in there and you're going to do the dirty work and I can give you intelligence. So I thought that was a neat way of representing himself or you know uh presenting himself rather yeah and he he gives victor and victor's pals some weapons some guns huh and yeah that that scene i i I just found it he uh as he gives them the guns he tells victor we work together army and intelligence with my help you'll break master lin's freshman kill record so yeah they form that alliance um and it's all just to help motivate Victor to kill Marcus. Yeah. I mean, it's not all business. There's definitely an element of just personal. Yeah. Personal personal vendetta vendetta that exists there because, well, in the previous chapters, we've talked about how Marcus was kind of the cool kid, didn't invite him to the parties, which was kind of a small thing initially, but things just kept escalating at one point when later on when he does invite him to a party he makes him the butt of the joke in front of everybody and then on top of that he sleeps with the girl that he likes and it's just it just keeps piling up yeah <laughs> this was harry potter harry potter would have incinerated him ages ago <laughs> i want to go back to what you were saying earlier during your summary about the what was it the the orgy of blood and violence however <laughs> it was that you phrased it because I, I think that's one of the things that kind of defines these opening chapters to me in this volume is that the chaos of it all is just it's just wild like everybody starts off in the auditorium and then people are trying to escape and from the very get-go you just see yeah. kids getting stabbed or shot in the back as they're trying to run and then the hallways just become this terrible mess of blood and gore as kids are getting assaulted or shot or stabbed or whatever. And then you got all the various cliques or gangs teaming up Mm -hmm. against, uh, I guess they're just hunting 
the people who are considered the rats. So you have this sort of uh, class warfare thing going on, right? You got the the uh, legacy kids, all the kids who have these impressive pedigrees and parents that really some or guardians who somehow you know set them set them up to attend king's dominion and then you got the rats who are the kids who somehow through some other means found their way there and they may not necessarily have a parent who well is alive or you know wealthy and and or connected they don't or, have the pedigree like you said exactly exactly so it's it's kind of like the rich kids against all the poor kids in some sense but even within the group of rich kids you have your different cliques so it really does feel like high school where you have all these groups of people who tend to stay with people who are very similar to them and just the various seeing the various high school tropes play out in this kind of deadly setting i don't know there's that you were gonna say in this deadly class <laughs> <laughs> i was about to i was very close to saying he that. said the name of the book he said the name of the book <laughs> yeah, this yeah. class of deadliness <laughs> this class of deadliness man that's what it's, that's what this comic is about <laughs> but yeah, you just see all the typical groups that you would normally see in high school, except in this comic, they're trying to kill each other in a very yeah. literal way. Whereas yeah. in an actual high school, they may, the kids may not necessarily always be trying to kill each other literally, but in a figurative sense, they may try to, uh, you know, just be at odds with one another or just whether it's bullying or isolation or just having a rivalry with another clique of people like you, yeah. you, that's the kind of stuff you see normally in in high school and in these teen stories yeah yeah and i, I would well, even say sometimes you even see stuff like what we see with shabnam and victor when they form the alliance because that's you know the typical school nerd using his smarts to kind of team up with a dumb bully of the school you know and maybe they don't even like each other, but they're willing to work together or be temporarily on the same side because there's some there's kind a of benefit of convenience. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have the outsiders like Petra and Marcus. They they stick together against the jocks and the cheerleaders. And literally in this chapter, they're fighting cheerleaders and a football player are trying to kill them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty funny concept where you have the typical high school setting and the typical high school cliques, but, you know, because it's dressed up in the, through the prism of a school for assassins, you're, you don't just have regular cheerleaders, they're assassin cheerleaders. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not just a regular football team. It's an assassin football team. And the thing I don't even get about that is, who who are they playing? Do they play other assassin schools? <laughs> yeah. Are there other assassin schools in this world? I don't get it. <laughs> who who does this football team play? <laughs> uh. Yeah, I don't get it either. I mean, we just see 
We just see a guy named Derp Flumdunger dressed up in his football uniform with his yeah. helmet and everything, <laughs> charging at Marcus and, and yeah. Petra when they're inside. You know, they're they're trying to hide inside a supply closet or something. It's just a bizarre image, but yeah. for some reason, that's the kind of imagery that fits the tone and the world that has been established in the comic. It's kind of fun, actually. I don't, I don't. It's bizarre, but in a fun way because it really does remind me of like B movie schlock. Like <laughs> I could see that sort of thing working out in something like Hobo. This, this one movie they did with Rutger Hauer a few years ago, Hobo with a Shotgun. Oh it's yeah, that yeah. Sort of craziness. It's that kind of wild, like off the wall sort of idea. Um, yeah. I prior to this episode that we were working on we were actually talking about how i've been reading other rick remender comics this year i'm calling it my remin year because it's a year of reading remender comics mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> hashtag remin year uh and the thing is i've i've read some of his more his uh fantasy works and his science fiction works and i do enjoy those too but i think there's something about his world building where, and I, I think some people appreciate this more than I do or I'm capable of, which is he doesn't, he's pretty fanciful about his world building. And if you've got a better attention span than I do, I think you're able to really appreciate it more. Like I'd have to read it maybe two times before I'm really fully able to like process everything. But the thing about Deadly Class is the world building is set up already because it's so rooted in the actual real world. So you don't have to imagine these different cliques or the the, the social structure from, from scratch because he's building it based on this pre-existing structure that we're all kind of familiar with, mm-hmm. you know, the, the high school structure. So because that level that extra layer of thinking is removed i can just throw myself fully into the story um and the other thing that you were mentioning is how how much how action oriented this issue 17 is and it literally picks up right where we leave off at the end of issue 16 which is them in an auditorium and the freshman purge is announced and they're saying in order for the freshman class to graduate to the next grade what's going to happen is you're going to have to kill these kids that are that we've designated as rats right Mm -hmm. and it picks up issue 17 just starts off with marcus running out of the auditorium right as all these kids are chasing him trying to murder him Mm -hmm. so it's just go 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 right from there. Uh, yeah, yeah. I th- very. I thought it was very a fast fun pace. way to pick up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you have anything else about this issue? Going back to some of our other principal characters, I think about Billy as well as Willie and Saya, because they have a scene here um, where Billy is initially thinking about going with Saya and Willie, but because but because the two of them are not part of the rats, Billy is a rat, 
at the end of the situation, he decides it's probably smarter for him to stay with other rats. I guess there's something interesting about seeing the fracture of these relationships or and friendships because it was only you know a few several issues ago when all four of them were together and relied on each other times yeah exactly exactly (laughs) yeah And, and now they're just split apart in in these different groups and they can't trust each other later on we'll even see that Sai and willie don't stay together we also get Again, I'm going ahead of myself a little bit, but later on we get some scenes with with Marcus and Billy and and then Marcus and Willie where they do talk about their friendship and they kind of have these heart-to-heart moments which is it seemed kind of unexpected especially since up to this point in the series a lot of what we've seen from Marcus has been less than exemplary, and he's just been primarily a selfish jerk who is looking out for himself. So later on, when we see those moments when he does actually vocalize his care and interest in his friends, yeah, there's something about those scenes that will give us something to talk about when we get to them, And I guess. But right now, I, I would say it kind of feels like it's laying quite a bit of groundwork for that setup because Marcus could have easily just ignored Billy and just kept on running at the school, but he actually took the time here in issue 17 to call out to him and try to get him to he go with him. some sort of loyalty to him. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And then Billy's and... good sense just makes him, you know, decide to go with Marcus and Petra. Yeah. Well, I think their entire... Relation dyna- relationship dynamics is pretty par for the course for teenagers in the sense that up to this point, <laughs> Marcus... If I need you for something, I'll join you. If I don't need you, <laughs> I'm going to call you. Well, yeah, there's that. But up to this point, Marcus has had this really icy relationship with Willie and Saya, especially after those two get together. Because, mm-hmm. you know, he feels that he's been betrayed, right? So... Traitor! You're with him! <laughs> exactly, exactly. You so he feels like kill me! <laughs> he feels like he's been betrayed by by Willie because he was telling Willie, hey, I wanted to be with Saya. And then before he can even say anything, Saya reveals, oh, yeah, he's been talking to me. And he told me he, he revealed his feelings to me, too, right? Mm-hmm. So even though they went through this really dangerous experience together in Vegas and with uh fuckface, uh yeah. Even though they, they went through all these trials together and you know their their lives were on the line and they had to rely on each other. Even though in spite of all that, they are unable to they are unable to let that let those relationships go completely right because to some degree even though he's mad at them there's still a part of him especially under the circumstances where the success of these kids is completely contingent on them killing these rats so willie and saya could have killed any number of them right there in that moment too they could have went after them but 
they didn't, right? So yeah. it just goes to show how complicated their feelings are towards each other, even though they're all trying to project this image of themselves as ice cold and completely savage and fero- as a completely savage and ferocious murderers. Mm-hmm. They're at the end of the day, they're still kids and they've got raging hormones and their <laughs> feelings towards each other are complicated in all yeah. sorts of ways. Mm-hmm. So I do think that that moment there, yeah, it's, it's like I said, it's par for the course for real teenagers because they're just all kinds of nuts. You know, they're, they're not fully formed people at that point. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And, and given a situation that's life and death, I'd say they are even less capable of making <laughs> rational decisions and under those circumstances. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you have any other thoughts on issue 17 or should we move on? We can move on. Let's go to Deadly Class issue 18. <clears throat> With the whole school seemingly after them, Marcus, Billy, and Petra make a break for it. While des- while a desperate Klinger honors, Klinger honor like Polly, also known as the red shirt guy, whose only defining feature seems to be that he wears a red shirt and is easily forgettable, <laughs> tries to get in their good graces for his own protection. Marcus... Marcus's attitude seems to be every man for himself, but with everything that's happened, Billy has had an epiphany about the awful nature of the school and how it attracts the worst kinds of monsters. He wants to help Polly. Shabnam calls Kendall to a secret meeting where he blackmails Kendall into killing, into killing Stefan by threatening to reveal to their parents that they are involved in a relationship with one another. Kendall leaves knowing he has a tough decision to make. Saya and Willie flee Willie's clique, who have reason to believe Willie is a fraud and that he has killed one of their own. While on the run, the two have a heart-to-heart. Saya implores Willie to get over his apprehensions. He's going to have to kill if he's going to survive this ordeal. Confronted with this reality, Willie reveals to Saya that on the night of his parents' death, what actually happened was that in a misguided attempt to help out, he was the one who actually shot his own dad. He's lived with his trauma and this secret ever since. Saya goes off to ha- Saya goes off to handle Willie's crew alone, leaving him behind. During their fight, she kills most of them, but is winged by one. As he stands over her, Willie has no choice but to act to protect his girlfriend, and he ends up taking a life. In the moments after, while Willie makes the observation that Saya could have killed the last attacker, but did in order to force Willie to act. But before they could settle it, Master Lin calls them to his office. Lin voices his displeasure with, with all the chaos that Marcus has caused and places the blame squarely on the two of them. They had a chance to kill him and they chose not to. And now he expects them to finish the job. Or there will be consequences. Mm-hmm. One of the first things that jumps out to me with issue 18 is actually the fourth page of this because it's a born-again homage. It's like Rick Remender's writing style just becomes super reminiscent of Frank Miller's. And then the artwork, was Craig's artwork, calls to mind David Mazzuccelli's Kingpin. And the 
that whole scene is just reminiscent of that scene from Born Again when Kingpin is, you know, standing in his skyscraper in his office, looking out the window, holding a cigar or whatever, and thinking about Daredevil and how there is no corpse. You know that scene? I I don't remember it off the top of the head. Is is the scene you're describing the one where Shabnam is looking out the window? Yeah, That's yeah. And, for, and right? Shabnam is is holding. And he's not holding a cigar. He's holding a a candy, candy bar. bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and yeah. then the uh, the writing, the narration. You know, it, the last couple lines, it's it's just talking about Marcus, and then the last line is Marcus was still alive, and I felt like that was remender's way of doing the there is no corpse scene you know right right well you'll have to post that up on the gram to show our good listeners because it we we've talked about this in the past how rick remender seems to be paying homage to several classic comic books we mentioned some of the how some of the vibes of this book tend to touch on things like claremont's x-men and yeah, we, we see this uh, Daredevil homage here. So it'll be cool to put that up on the gram and, you know, show show the people just how they match up against one another. Yeah, totally. And it totally makes sense because, you know, remember. He turned Shabnam into like, the kingpin. Which he essentially is at this point, right? Mm-hmm. He's He's used his mastery over secrets right in the next scene where he's talking to Kendall and Kendall is this other preppy kid. And for all intents and purposes, he should be this, one of the elites at the school, right? Cause he comes from a good family. He's wealthy. He he's privileged, but Shabnam, the, the guy who in almost any other story would be considered the geek or the nerd. He's got this thing to hang over him and he ends up using it to to force Kendall to do his bidding for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, like I was saying, it, it makes sense that Reminder would go and pay homage to all these scenes out of old comics because he just seems like a guy who, who grew up with reading all that stuff. And, and we've Especially seen Especially 80s comics. Yeah, yeah. So he knows his stuff, man. He knows his stuff. I'm waiting for us to get some kind of homage to the Walter Simonson Thor at some point. <laughs> I can't wait till we get the homage to the greatest comic of all time as Guardian Wars. <laughs> uh, Chris Claremont, is there any comic you can't ruin? <laughs> uh. I'm kidding. I'm sure he's. Uh, I'm sure he's fine. <laughs> uh, he's a person who wrote some books. There we go. That's the nicest thing that I could ever say about him. <laughs> he is a person, and he wrote comics. He is comics. a person, and he wrote comics. <laughs> he exists. Yeah. <laughs> uh, as far as I know, he hasn't killed anyone or done anything that's led to the death of anybody. <laughs> See, he's a good guy. Yeah. He's a great guy great guy he's a hero he's a hero give him the nobel prize in literature (laughs) exactly well where's his trophy (laughs) he woke up today and he didn't kill anyone where's his trophy (laughs) (laughs) 
I want to go back to that scene you mentioned with Shabnam and Kendall when they have their little conversation and Shabnam, you know, pretty much just lays down how it is with this other kid telling him that he's got all the dirt on his homosexual relationship and he's, if anything happens to Shabnam, he's going to get his friends on the outside to send those pictures and things to both boys' fathers, which will really ruin them for, for life. Uh, so he, he just comes across as this really cold and menacing guy, even though he just looks like a pudgy little nerd. Yeah. But the coloring in that scene is pretty outstanding, in my opinion. I, I like it a lot. It just stands out to me where when the when Kendall walks into the room, uh, you can see that everything inside the room is colored in this in various uh, gradations of blue. It's like a metallic blue or something like that. Yeah, really there's this. Yeah, there's this really moody monochromatic coloring style to the scene. But you can tell just from the doorway, looking through the open door, that the stuff in the hallway is kind of this reddish, pinkish. Uh, it's shade. like hot pink or something. Yeah, yeah. So it's like walking from this, the outside where it's hot pink, kind of indicates you know this sense where, you know, out in the school, in the rest of the school, in the hallways and whatever, it's a danger zone. But once you come into the the kingpin's office, there's a sense of coolness to it, and there isn't that chaos inherently uh, present. But then. Once he starts talking to Kendall and they he starts telling him that he knows all his secrets and he starts threatening Kendall, that's when the colors start to change again. And they're still inside the room, but the shade of the of the background just starts to turn pink. And then pretty soon by the end of it, like those panels are just colored pink. And then after that sequence, it goes back to the blue color scheme when Shabnam starts to calm down again and then mm, you know he mm. basically like pats him on the arm and says you better do what I tell you because that's just how it is and then he sends uh, Kendall back outside the into the hallway and then you have one panel in on that page where Kendall is in the hallway and he's just colored all red <laughs> And then we cut yeah. back to inside the room, and it's back in that blue scheme. There's just something incredibly moody about that. I, I really like the use of colors in that specific sequence. It's very well done. Yeah. I also want to talk about the contents of that scene, too, where it's like you said, in that moment, everything is chaos outside. But in here, Shabnam is under control. He's, he's the mastermind. And it's really what he says to Kendall in the moment where Kendall comes in there. He's initially, you know, just kind of swinging, swinging his uh, his junk around, acting like he's a big man, right? Because he's the cool kid and Shabnam's the nerd. So he comes in here and he thinks he can just kind of dictate terms to Shabnam. But Shabnam very quickly makes it clear that he's the one in charge here. And like you said, once he, the moment he loses his temper, everything starts to turn pink in that room and it just gets progressively more 
pink and red as he gets angry until he regathers his composure and puts himself together right mm-hmm. but that scene it reminds me of this scene from big breaking bad it's it's the moment where well uh, let me see if i can read it to you so he's he's talking to kendall and he goes I realize all that stood between everyone's secrets and me was a lock and learning how to open a lock led me to the box of love letters that you hide under your bed. You remember the letters from Stefan detailing your homosexual relationship, your macho overcompensation was a sign that I should look into you a bit closer. And I was right. I made copies of your love letters, followed you and took pictures of acts. That's what makes me think I can talk to you. However the fuck I want. You see, while you've all been sucking and fucking and having your fun, I've been digging up dirt on all of you. You dumb pricks think this is all about poisoning and stabbing people? That's for fucking monkeys. Yeah, and he just looks so infuriated in that panel. Yeah, and it's a scene that reminds me of something from Breaking Bad, and it's a scene that happens in the later seasons where Walter White is talking to his wife and he's revealed to her that someone tried to assassinate him. So she's panicking, but Walter White just looks at her and he kind of loses it momentarily. And he goes, and I'm just going to paraphrase it here because I don't really have it, all the words in front of me, but he goes, you see on the news that someone shows up at someone's house and murder and murders them. And you think that of me, you think that, I'm the one who opens the door and gets murdered. He goes, no, I am the danger. I am the man who knocks, you know, (laughs) it's just such a great scene, but it's, I think it's a scene here that is on par with that, where it just takes this seemingly, this seemingly non-menacing person and it just shows him dialing it up to 11 and just letting him know you think that i'm just this unassuming geek but i'm the one who holds all the cards here i'm the one in charge of the situation and like in breaking bad the moment that he says that her his wife's fear for him he immediately turns into fear of him it's so (laughs) it's such a great scene (laughs) that makes a lot of sense yeah yeah i haven't seen that show but that is something I do got to check out at some point. Yeah, it's a terrific show. It's and it's a terrific scene. I also wanted to talk about the scene where Saya and Willie are fighting Willie's old crew. And up to this point, there's a lot of bad blood between the crew because in the previous volume, one of them goes after Willie only to end up dead because they they get a hear a rumor that you know, Willie didn't actually kill anybody and hasn't killed anybody. And this is just something that he's been living with up to this point. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they're all out in force to try to get the two of them. And, you know, Saya has that moment where she talks to him and she, it, it's a pretty revealing moment on her part because up to this point, they just seem like a couple, but she's telling him that, in order to survive this, I'm going to need you to get get your act together and to do what we're going to do, what we're naturally inclined to do at a school for assassins, which is kill other people.
when she sees that he doesn't have the resolve to do what they inevitably are supposed to do at a school for assassins, she decides to take it upon herself to kill the rest of them. But in in this twist that just shows, that gives the slightest bit of insight into how Saya's mind works, she kills all of them, and she could have very easily kills this last this last person, but she knowingly and willingly puts herself into danger because she just needs to put to see if Willie is one, she needs to see if Willie is going to be able to do what he needs to do when the time comes. And two, I, I imagine she wants to force him to do what he needs to do. Uh you know, it's, it's not just a test, but it's also this attempt to push him into doing this one thing that he really doesn't have the stomach for. And it's a pretty messed up thing to do to someone. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Especially yeah. since we know how things turn out between them in the next couple issues or so. Yeah, yeah. It just makes and- it feel even worse. I do think it's the the sort of storytelling and and projection that a writer can can do in order to show that Saya really is thinking on on this whole other level and and there is this there is this pretty high drama to it because I don't know how much the two of them actually liked each other. I, I'll take it on face value that they were a sincere or a genuine couple. You know, that uh, we, we've talked about it in, on, on this episode in uh, previous volumes where we've questioned whether they really do like each other, whether even Sayo really likes Willie. Uh, I believe in the last volume, you were saying that she might be doing this just to manipulate the situation with Marcus. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm I still think that that's a possibility. But again, if we take it on face value, her ability to do some to do this to Willie, it, it sort of mirrors the scene. A scene later. Oh, okay. I won't spoil it for now. But it's the idea that for her to do this to someone that she's supposedly in love with, or in like with, that's I mean that's a hard thing to do. It just shows this just how much of a cold-blooded killer she can be. You know, she might be the ideal student for this school, if you really think about it. Yeah, that's true. Just yeah. a master manipulator, someone who's super cold-hearted. But it's strange, because even though she has these really cold-blooded moments, and she's obviously stone-cold killer, as we see her dispatch these gunmen with her katana... There are still moments in the story where it, some of the things that she does, they make you wonder, what is she actually doing? What's her long-term game plan? I mean, why did she let Marcus and Petra and Billy run away in the first place? Yeah. Like, why didn't she just stop them right then and there? True, true. So it's... I feel like even though we continually see how cold she can be, like in the back of my mind... There are still questions about what's she ultimately aiming to do. Like, what is her, what's what's her deal, man? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, it's well now that you mention it. Now that you brought up her uncharacteristic moments of compassion, you're right. There is something about that, right? If she really is a cold-blooded killer, why did she let Marcus live when she could have very easily just killed them right there and earned the marks and the points to continue on to the next level? So it it does. It almost makes it feel like if you look at it from that perspective of oh, she might actually, let, let's let's play devil's advocate and say that she actually cares about them. And if we look at it from that perspective, her ability to do that to Willie, if we take it at face value, it would be, it would be an act of genuine concern, right? If she, mm-hmm. from her perspective, it's this idea that, look, these are dangerous times. And if not for me, then for your own good, you need to be able to do these things. And me putting you in that position where you think I'm in danger or where I'm going to die, yeah, that's manipulative, but it is going to force you to do something you don't want to do. And that's ultimately going to help you survive this situation. It's it's complex drama, man. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty psychopathic way of viewing the world too (laughs) hey there's a whole bunch of stuff in life we don't want to do man (laughs) sometimes when you were a kid let me ask you this do you know how to swim i know how to swim but i'm not a very good swimmer and i tend to stay away from things that involve swimming okay okay did did your parents try to teach you how to swim when you were a kid my parents themselves didn't teach me but they signed me up for a lesson so i could learn how to swim because in san francisco if you go to a public school you have to pass a swim test and that's pretty much the main reason why i learned how to swim right 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 well my parents tried to teach me to swim and their whole process was just throw him in the water and he'll sort it out his his natural (laughs) survival instincts will kick in (laughs) so is that That how you learned no i still don't know how to swim (laughs) (laughs) but But I believe, but I believe that that was that that thought process that that Saya exhibited. I believe that that was something that my parents adhered to, which was if we just make him do it, if we put him in a position where he will either have to sink or swim, literally, <laughs> then his survival instincts will kick in and he will naturally do what he has to do. Hey, but you didn't drown. I didn't, but I can honestly say that I never wanted to go near water again after that. <laughs> Wait, how did you pass the swim test? Um, I took the swim class, and then my swim teacher was pretty cool about it. He said the swim test was – there was this one part where you had to tread water. Yeah. And his his whole thing was, okay, here's the thing. I'll let you tread water without the floaties for a minute or if you do it for two minutes i'll let you do it with the floaties and what? i immediately went i'll do it with the floaties and that's how i passed the swim test wow. <laughs> so he didn't make you he didn't make you do the six laps on the sh- the short way 
Oh, they made me do the six laps. I mean, the short way was easy. That that was okay. you know the instead of so, doing so the, you can, the, you can kind of you can swim. I can kind of swim. I mean, like I said, I took the swim class. Yeah. For whatever that was worth, but you know, if if I was out on a desert island or not a desert island, out in a on an island somewhere, or or if I was like, you know, in a uh, shipwreck, on in a shipwreck or something. Yeah, I I. I, I'm dead. Like, I'm not even going to put it as a maybe. I'm dead straight up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I personally stay away from water sports of all kinds. I don't have any interest in surfing or jet skis or, or anything like Same that, here. man. Same here. Like, I. Some people say that it's really freeing or whatever, but no thanks. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm good. Yeah, being alive is more freeing than being dead, in my opinion. Yeah. And personally, the thing about water is it, it's kind of like skydiving in the sense that I'm completely giving myself up to a situation that I have almost zero control over. Yeah. So I'm good. I'm really good. <laughs> yep. I agree, man. Yeah. One Anything thing about else? that fight at the end with Saya and those gunmen there's some it's a pretty well drawn scene like there's this one splash page where she's jumping out uh and there's like not really a background i guess it's just like all white with some bits of debris or paper flying around her and she's got her sword at its apex as she's leaping at someone who's pointing a gun at her that that's another thing that totally looks like a frank miller comic to me cuz her her body is like half covered in shadow. Like all you really see are her the tattoos on her arms and one of her legs, but then like there's just this use of uh you know minimalism in the drawing where her eyes it's or her face is just all shadow except you see her teeth and her eyes. Like the rest of her clothes are pretty much all all black. Um she's wearing a, a Punisher tank top for some reason. <laughs> so you can see the skull yeah it it totally looks like something you would see in a sin city comic yeah 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 well like i i don't think i think instinctually when i was looking at this scene it it reminded me of something but seeing it or hearing you discuss it right now i i do see the sin city homage or the 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 sin city elements of it even the scene where next to the panel where she's jumping out of the darkness because it, it kind of reminds me of deadly little miho yeah exactly right and uh the scene right next to it the panel right next to it where the blade cut is just so clean and concise that it cuts the fingertip and the barrel of the gun yeah so neatly that that feels like a miller thing too you know it does man yeah, yeah. the layout the, just the style of it the minimalism totally reminds me of frank miller's drawing yeah yeah is that supposed to be the punisher's emblem on her shirt i think it is well it's just such an iconic emblem at this point that unless she's wearing generic skull shirt character <laughs> uh <laughs> you know uh t-shirt you know everybody's favorite generic skull shirt wearing vigilante 
character. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was 1988 when this story takes place, right? I, I guess the Punisher was popular back then. That's kind of when he came out, right? And, and especially if we're alluding back to the idea of Frank Miller homages. Uh, I don't know if that was the period of time. Yeah, I want to say that was kind of the period of time where Punisher was showing up in Daredevil comics, right? Probably earlier, because I think Miller's run on Daredevil was the earlier 80s. But yeah, I think I think Punisher did get his own title in the late 80s. I don't remember what year, though. Yeah. Well, but again, that's just feel it it feels apropos yeah there there's something appropriate about her out of all the characters wearing a punisher shirt yeah i'm also looking at this scene at the end where master lin is talking to him and you know back to the whole harry potter thing where the headmaster of the school is actually this nice old man who's watching out for your best interests master lin completely subverts that idea too he's a <laughs> utter bastard here he's a horrible old man who was not looking out for anybody's interests except his own in a reality where we have nothing but a horrible old man all over the news all the time he is a horrible old man (laughs) i do like the way that they draw him towards the end when he's talking to willie and saya and he's basically letting know that the jib jib is up jig is up the jig jig is up you know that he knows that marcus let them go uh, he knows that they let marcus go and if he without saying it outright he essentially tells them that unless these two do unless these two write that wrong they he will take it out on them in some form or another and mm-hmm. when you're watching this scene you're just watching you're seeing the same image of him in shadow half his face is in shadow half his face is just really just full of wrinkles and grimaces and it's just a menacing look and it just gets closer and closer into his face and you don't see the whites of his eyes up until the very last panel where you when you're the closest to his face and and the darkness has almost completely consumed it so that all you really see is the mustache the whites of his teeth and the whites of his eyes and you know bits of his nose and his cheek but he is pretty menacing in that moment yeah the inking is exceptional on those panels plus the little inset panels next to his face where you see the reaction shots from willie and saya yeah those are really well done too they're just these really tiny panels offset by a bunch of negative space and as the as the speech uh, progresses, as Master Lin's speech progresses, like those panels of their reaction shots just get yeah. a little bit more uh, tilted and tilted, you know, kind of almost losing losing their cohesion in a way. It's yeah. a good way to show or to demonstrate how serious the situation is, man. Like they're probably, yeah. you know, crapping themselves. Well, check this out. The The thing about those little panels is as things get more chaotic, their faces take up more and more of the negative space within those panels. And up to the very end, it just feels like the the entire border of the panels are gone altogether. And it's just, there are no longer any borders around their faces as mm-hmm. they're just in free fall at this point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And 
you know, speaking of the use of negative space from earlier, yeah, just the way that these blocks are, you know, the the negative space that these blocks are using to communicate the just that sense free falling. of falling. Yeah, that sense of free fall, that sense of, oh, we are we are at a loss here. We no longer have any control over our situation whatsoever as forces that be have just completely knocked our world over. Mm -hmm. Like using that negative space to communicate that is just another great example of uh, comic book storytelling. Yeah, totally. I'd be very interested to see if I want to see how Remender wrote this page in the script just to see like where did the idea for that kind of layout come from? Yeah, yeah. You ready to move on to issue 19? Let's do it. Okay. Deadly Class, issue 19. Victor hunts Billy down in a high-octane chase through the streets of San Francisco. During the fight, Victor unleashes all of his pent-up frustration on Billy and what he sees is wrong with his American counterparts. He, he discusses his childhood and how he was too weak to protect his mother and sisters when British Secret Service came and murdered them. He has lived with that memory every day and used it to shape his resolve. As Victor is about to land the killing blow, Billy unleashes his trap, and Victor and his team are left seriously injured. Billy, Marcus, and Petra escape while Dan watches from above. He fires an explosive arrow that really messes the three of them up. Billy has a breakdown and is about to give it all up, but Marcus pleads with him, and they devise a new plan to just run away and start new lives. They run off into the night while Victor and Dan are in pursuit. Shabnam receives a call. Someone wants to make a deal, and they're willing to give Marcus up. Shabnam accepts. Marcus, Billy, and Petra hide out at Fuckface's old pad. It's the safest location they can think of to hide, to hide out until morning. Marcus checks in on a distraught, distracted Billy in his room where we see that there is a phone with a landline. Got to start off with the opening scene of this issue, which begins at a Tower Records as a kid debates the merits of the music of the B-52s with the store clerk, who's kind of like the music version of the Simpsons comic book guy. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. That's a, an amusing scene. Like, the series... Is constantly replete with these various references to 80s music. And the B-52s are definitely a group that I associate with the 80s, even though I'm not super familiar with their discography, other than maybe a couple of their Radio singles. Hits. Yeah. yeah. But just the idea that, that, uh, they, that Remender and Craig decided to start the issue with this scene it's i mean it's like a page and a half basically or at least like a full page where these guys are just talking in a tower records before billy runs in and then victor's chasing them and then everybody ends up dying <laughs> it's like yeah it's it's some really bleak comedy right there it's like pretty your, it's a your pretty last jarring moments, switch your last <laughs> moments are just talking about the b-52s the funny painful. thing about that is the funny thing about that is this kid is talking to him and 
this comic, you know, this record store guy is a total record or music elitist. He's just kind of crapping on the B-52s. And this kid is trying to educate him, just let him know that, hey, there's so much more to it. There's something kind of edgy about the B-52s in their banality, you know? He talks about how, let's see, what does he say here? They're not trying to plug themselves into some stunted adolescent need to feel tough like metal. Punk and metal and all that shit, it just became conformist uniform uniform with same-sounding music. And he's just like, look at you. You look like every metalhead I know. All safe in your uniform. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he goes, uh, he goes, the B-52s are true original. Are, are true original. The That's pretty rare. A bunch of art school kids from Athens, Georgia, putting together a mix of doo-wop, surf tones, and free-flowing oddball psychedelic, psychedelic lyrics. Two knockouts running around in beehive hairdos Fred Schneider, this flamboyant gay guy who's just fearless. And, you know, he ends the conversation by saying, like, how about I stick around and you listen to an album before you judge him? You know, and it almost feels like there's this moment where he's going to change this guy's mind. And, you know, it's a moment of levity. And he just goes, I'd literally rather take a bullet to the face before he gets shot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, he says that I'd literally rather take a bullet to the face. Than... Poor last words. Poor choice yeah. of last words. Yeah. <laughs> but even a little conversation like that, even though it's it seems like it's there to play off as some really black comedy, there is something in their conversation, the excerpt that you just shared, that I feel says quite a bit about just teenage life and, and young people and, you know, being posers or being real, all the kind of stuff that people care about when they're in high school, being authentic or being artistic, being conformist or nonconformist or, or whatever. I think there was another scene in an earlier trade when uh, the kids were, Marcus and some people were at a party and they were talking about music. I think it was with that, it might have been that scene where they were I think it was Kendall. It. Was it was it with Kendall? No, no, no. It was Lex. It was with Lex. Was he the British kid? Yeah. So he was he was kind of bullying them uh, about their music choices, and you know, Marcus was quote unquote taking the high road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting to see those little bits. These little bits of commentary just pop up again and again in Remender's comic. Like oh. I don't know exactly what his musical tastes are, but it does seem like he cares about music quite a bit. Like that's probably something that he, I don't know, spends a lot of time thinking about, you know, the art of the art, the artistry of it all. Yeah. It, it is cool that he's able to interject that into the comic and seamlessly like i don't know if it's some sort of commentary on everything else that he's doing i'd have to think about it some more but you know if, if you get a chance to do your own comic or your own story you do have to interject these little moments it's these little moments that in between scenes that make it 
that populate it and make it feel like a real place, a real world. Because um, otherwise, it's just a bunch of main characters without any real context, right? There, mm -hmm. It doesn't really feel like the world is quite lived in, but adding little scenes like this does that. And then, you know, to suddenly break that scene by bringing us back to the main story that way is, is a pretty shocking, jarring yeah. uh, way to bring you back to the story. Yeah, because like at first opening up this issue, I start reading it, I'm like, this is kind of fun, but what does this have to do with anything? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, they just all get butchered. Yeah, and it's the, just the guy's like, I would reminder. literally rather take a bullet to the face. And yeah, then lo and, and behold, he takes a bullet <laughs> to the face. It's a reminder that, oh yeah, other the main story is still going on. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know what this scene reminds me of, though? It reminds me of something that I see a lot in Bendis's creator own comics because I think huh. of something like Powers, right? And I don't know how much of Powers you've read, but there's a lot of stuff in Powers where he'll just have scenes, and sometimes these scenes last one page, sometimes they'll go multiple pages, where it, it's basically a character, like an, an unimportant character, just, you know, like a nameless random character that shows up once, kind of talking uh, either with another character or even just straight up talking to the audience and it's it's almost like a word from the author like a a little soapbox where he can write about some kind of societal issue or make a commentary on some kind of art or anything uh kind of similar to what we see in the record store here like i think about uh in powers for example by bendis and oming I don't remember specifically which story arc. I think it's one of the later ones, but I remember there was a story arc where every issue in that story opened up with a scene of a person talking at an open mic night. And usually that scene would be the person saying something about, I don't know, it was either some kind of like long joke about something or just commentary about something a problem that they see in society and you can't help but read those scenes and think it just feels like that's the author you know talking to us and yet there's still something within that monologue that is related to the rest of the story within like it ties in from a thematic standpoint uh there was another bendis comic i read recently a more recent series he did at dark horse called joy operations i think that one had art by stephen byrne it's like this cyberpunk comic the story itself didn't necessarily stand out to me but that's another comic where there are definitely scenes in which a character basically spends an entire page monologuing to no one specifically in particular just monologuing about the uncreative elements of movie making or something it was it was basically like one of those those diatribes about art versus commerce and and how like industry just stifles the life out of art um and you know it's not necessarily something extremely profound or something that we've never heard but it's something that i think uh not only 
ties in with that story that it's telling, but it's also like Bendis getting on a soapbox and just railing about something <laughs> that he doesn't like. <laughs> it, it, he's taking this opportunity to take a break from the main story just to talk about <laughs> how much he hates brunch or something. <laughs> yeah, pretty much how much he hates Hollywood yeah. and, and the machine. Yeah. It's, you know, just a one page little aside. Uh, yeah, I, f- I think he even did that sometimes in Ultimate Spider-Man. So it's not strictly limited to to uh, his creator-owned work, but just a lot of his comics in general. Like, I I remember there's this one scene in Ultimate Spider-Man when he writes the uh, the first uh, Venom story in Ultimate Spider-Man. And I, I think there's a, an extended sequence that lasts at least... It's at least two or four pages where Peter Parker finds a recording from his father. And it's his father talking about, like... <laughs> basically railing about the human condition and just like how selfish and greedy people are <laughs> and trying to encourage his son to, you know, be a better person and stuff. But it's the kind of thing that is really preachy, but because it takes place within the context of the story, I actually think there's something kind of moving about it because it's it's still framed in this way of a father giving words to his recording words to his son who's you know too young to understand but then like peter parker is a teenager by the time he finds the recording and and listens to his dad's message but you can also read it as just bendis getting on a soapbox talking about how awful people are (laughs) and you can't really disagree you know like there's nothing in it where it's i don't think it's controversial but it's just funny to think that a writer enjoys adding these really personal bits into his stories on a consistent basis and i i do wonder when i see these little scenes in deadly class about music and people commenting on being a conformist or what's a poser and and selling out and things like that it kind of feels to me like those are probably i don't know if rick remender still feels any strong way about those today or even at the time that he was writing the book but i bet he felt strongly about those ideas or topics back when he was younger, you know, because it just feels there's just something about the way he writes those scenes that feels really passionate, genuine, genuine. Yeah. 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 I can, I can see that. I mean, every, how do I put this? Every person who came to comics from that indie circuit of, comics creators it really does feel like that's something that they felt personally passionate about the 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 idea of comic storytelling as art compared to comic storytelling as business and it it feels even more prevalent now that we're in the corporate age of comics um Mm -hmm. but yeah i i could totally imagine him taking this as an opportunity to exactly uh, have a diatribe on what exactly <laughs> is what in his mind you know yeah. what what is what is comics what is pure what is real comics you know <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. there's also a scene there this this scene this issue was pretty much 
a whole lot of action. I'd say this volume is a lot of action, but this issue in particular does feel like it's nonstop action because it's mostly just Victor chasing down Billy. You don't even really see Marcus in it too much, which is kind of an interesting choice. Mm -hmm. And at one point, Victor catches up with Billy and he's just, you know, kicking the tar out of him. But they're also having a conversation where Billy talks about how he resented his father this and this is a continuing through line that we see with billy over and over again we we see how he has all this resentment and anger towards him but victor tells this story about how his parents his mother was killed by uh british secret services and how his father was disgusted by his inability to do anything, even though he's just this little kid. And he talks about how, you know, this American, you, you know, as an American, you, you're so entitled, you feel like you had the right to hate your parents for that. But I took that experience and it made me, it made me stronger. Mm -hmm. I, I work hard. All, all of you guys spend all in, in a way, this, almost puts him on even terms with someone like Shabnam. It's kind of what they, the two of them have in common, even though he looks like he's, he would be one of the jocks or something, even though early on in the series, he's beating the crap out of Shabnam. The, this is the thing that they apparently have in common, which is he looks at his American counterparts and he just sees all you guys ever do is party and have fun. And like every time the slightest little thing happens, uh, the, every time the slightest thing that your parents do to you, some do anything to you, you just lash out at them and you hate them. And, you know, all you do is try to party and you don't work hard at school at all. Like he has like no respect for, for mm -hmm. Billy, you know? Mm -hmm. And it just it just manifests in in this beating. Just yeah, it, I do think this this volume is interesting in how he takes all these characters, especially a series like Deadly Class that has just so many characters involved, and he is able to interject bits and pieces of their backstories throughout, and it it feels right it doesn't feel jarring it doesn't feel like it's out of place the the way that he works their backstories into the actual plot that's happening is really well done yeah and i noticed that in this volume we got a bunch of little similar scenes like that where we learn more exactly backstory from various characters one of the exactly. things that it reminds me of is sleeper actually by brubaker and phillips because in Sleeper, we would get these. Uh, it would often they would often give us these supervillain origins of the various characters. Because Sleeper is a book about supervillains and just people who are on the wrong side of the law, uh, an organization of of bad guys basically. And every time you would meet a new supervillain, uh, well, maybe not every time, but quite a quite often we would have scenes where the villains would be, you know, in their downtime talking to each other, sharing their secret origin. And it just felt like in in that story in, in Sleeper, it was every time we got a new supervillain origin, it was a constant game of escalation. You know, we would always see uh, one messed up story 
topped by an even more messed up story. <laughs> and it kind of feels like we see something like that here in Deadly Class, where we're constantly, in in the entirety of Volume 4, we're constantly getting these really sad stories about kids and why they ended up at a school for assassins, and everybody's story is just super messed up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, well, okay. It, it, it makes me think of a scene that happens later, but I can discuss it when we get there. Okay. Yeah. How much work do you think it took for Billy and Marcus and Petra to set up this trap in the alleyway? Well, I think it's one of those situations where <laughs> maybe you don't really, I, I didn't really think about the logistics too much because the the real point of the scene is to get them to have this, this moment with each other. Right. Right. So, so I, yeah, I don't, I don't think I really need to look at it and be like, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> or, or, you know, try to, try to uh poke holes in what works about their plan or what doesn't but right, yeah right. it's 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 not something i i thought about too much okay one yeah. thing another thing that uh crossed my mind that i don't know maybe again i could see it being one of those things that you don't need to think about too much but the end of the issue uh when when it's implied that Billy is the one who betrays his friends and calls Shabnam, I was wondering, like, would an abandoned building like that even have a working landline? <laughs> well, maybe maybe Fuckface was really up to <laughs> up to date on his bills. <laughs> he he was uh, he was a serial killer. He was into bestiality, but you know what? <laughs> he was also responsible. He was yeah. super responsible. <laughs> he set up uh, an automatic automatic payment system for his phone bill. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. Dead. <laughs> <laughs> What's your problem? Why can't you just suspend your disbelief? <laughs> so you're, you're telling me that didn't cross your mind at all? Uh, it did, but okay. again, it was just the thing where I was like, okay, he, he needs to, he needs to get to a certain point in the story. Like it's not the most egregious, uh, a story element or, or plot element that I've ever seen where right, right. it gets to, you know, it, it's, it ain't nanites. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. So there we go. We good. We good. <laughs> mm-hmm. You, you have any thoughts else? on the uh, little scene that they have after that arrow messes them up and they're kind of like collapsed and, and Billy is ready to give up, but Marcus tells him that they can't quit. Like, I felt like that was a scene where it's up to this point the tender scenes from Marcus seem to be fairly rare. And I feel like if we did get a tender Marcus, it was usually like him playing at something, but here it feels like, you know, there's really nothing to play at, you know, of him. (laughs) Yeah. Like, like this being this close to death is giving us 
the nicest version of him that that we've seen so far. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Um, but I think I think that makes a lot of sense, right? Where unfortunately, being in the middle of a life and death situation tends to bring out the sentimentality in us. So, you know, who's to say, who's to say how he's going to be tomorrow or the week when after when they all survive and they're uh, like, who's to say whether he's going to revert to his old, you know, dick bag ways. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But for right now, in this moment, like that, that was a moment where you've seen him at his most hopeful. You've probably seen the best version of him up to this point, right? Because they're trying to get away and Billy is all kinds of messed up and he's just about to give up because he's losing hope and he's just telling himself, the world is this really ugly place. What kind of school? Again, it goes back to the idea of what kind of students go to a school for assassins? What kind of world do we live in yeah what kind of place is a a school for assassins right why do we why does a place like this even exist mm-hmm. you know i mean i i know people can look at it and say that there's a quote-unquote practical reason for something like that but just in terms of the just in terms of humanity why you know why is there we have this premium on education in society or used to you know where <laughs> we believe that if you work hard enough at school and you try hard, you can, your greatest accomplishment is to, the greatest thing that you can do with that is to give a gift to society, right? The, like, is to have some sort of achievement that is the betterment of mankind. We, we, we look at students and we tell, we used to tell them you can be an astronaut, you can, cure a disease you can be this like great leader and that was the aspiration but when you go to a place what is it like albert tell us how it's like get on your soapbox well i can't really say because i'm not in the habit of going to high schools and hanging out with high schoolers (laughs) it's not something i want to (laughs) do i have no interest in in spending time with teenagers to try to find out what they do like i i have enough things to worry about and i don't want to be the the creepy old guy that spends a little too much time with high school kids (laughs) hey kids what's fresh what's dope yo (laughs) you guys going down to the soda shop (laughs) no thanks but but the very idea that an institution like a school would be taken and used to generate a class of just killers, there's something inherently grotesque about that if you if you stop and look back at it and really think about it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and this is something that's hitting Marcus or, or hitting Billy exceptionally hard. Uh, like we it, it goes back to the epiphany that he has earlier when he's talking to Polly, where he's looking at how everyone at this school is just awful and he decides in that moment he decides how we be different 
how we how we defy this notion is by being different and by being different that means we care for people and we help people and this is this seems to be billy's entire arc throughout this volume because we see it yeah. over and over again i i'd even say that i think you mentioned earlier in one of our earlier podcasts that there isn't anyone in this series that you particularly like like it's a good series but just in terms of the people that that there aren't people that you particularly like or find yeah. there there are of a lot of character or good quality there are a lot of fascinating characters there aren't huh? a lot of characters that i would want to be friends with if they were real people if that makes sense yeah yeah but i do think billy shows probably the most growth or maybe not the most growth but he shows a substantial amount of growth here and he shows you know and maybe this is just high-minded idealism but he shows that he's better than this or he can be better than this and he might be someone that's just a product of circumstance okay here's a question then i had the same question uh when i was reading it for the first time but after i finished this issue it certainly feels like the story is implying that billy is the one who calls shabnam mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but there was also a part of me that was wondering is this just a fake out like are they just trying to make me think that billy is betraying his friends after sharing this really heartfelt moment with marcus that's true too did you but like when just take it at face value mentioned? that billy yeah. was the one who betrayed them i think so up to that point i took it at face value uh like because he's saying things that you want to hear you know yeah he's he's saying things that under tough circumstances are bring you hope they're enlightening they're positive and if this this degenerate can turn himself around then great right mm-hmm. but when we get to the end and they show the phone you're you're absolutely right that that makes at that point i did put everything into question so there was a part of me that that was aware that something wasn't right i don't know if i took it at face value or i i don't know if i was absolutely certain that it was billy but it certainly felt the way that the story set it up felt like billy had just turned them all in and he could have just been using that entire moment as a as you know as a conceit or as as a distraction them so that into he could, a false sense yeah, of security yeah exactly just a distraction so that he could eventually save his own hide so that that thought did cross my mind it was very much a possibility but that's the drama of it all once you get to the end and you see that phone that mysteriously still has service even though uh it's a slum house and i don't even know if that band of hillbillies was paying their phone bills <laughs> to begin with really when you mention it right uh-huh <laughs> but yes but so that that's the thing that i was wondering because i was thinking is the artwork just trying to trick us into thinking that billy is a traitor cuz i'll be honest my first thought was i feel like remender and craig were messing with my head 
So I think I just it put me on guard to to think that Petra yeah, would be the yeah. one that was gonna betray them. Kind of right, because this isn't the first time we've seen it in Deadly Class. We actually see this several times over and over again throughout the book, where he, where Craig and Reminder set up our expectations a certain way, but then they, they, they play with our us. emotions and yeah. they play, yeah, yeah, and but that's part of this sort of storytelling, especially the world building of it, right? Where you have, I'm, I'm gonna point to something like Game of Thrones where you have this really large and dynamic cast where the so much of the focal point of the story revolves around their interpersonal relationships and how those dynamics play themselves out, right? So part of what that, part of the assignment for Remender and Wes Craig are in this particular instance is how do you tell those stories of betrayal while setting while setting these characters against each other right and they have done it they they've shown themselves as being particularly adept at being really good at subverting our expectations and man i forgot what the word is but you know giving us these red herrings only to to flip everything on its head mm-hmm. and and that's part of the I guess the fun of the world building of Deadly Class is, again, this this is a series where you have all these different cliques, cliques and all these people vying for power and, uh, you know, plotting against one another in order to survive. And in order to communicate all those dynamics, you have to be able to be, you have to be able to show that through the panels, through the art, and through the story like there's it's not just the plotting in terms of what happens it's it's in this case i i think west craig is completely on board in okay how do i plan this out so that people who are reading it are set up to have certain expectations so that when we finally pull the wool from uh pull the rug from underneath them they're completely surprised by it right mm-hmm so, yeah, yeah, I, I do think that when by the time we get to the end here and we see that uh, Billy is the only person in the room with the phone, I, I didn't take it on face value. I took it very much as a possibility, but I think at that point I was just like, okay, let's see how this, where this plays out. Right, right. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. <clears throat> but either either way you cut it, I feel like this series definitely does a lot with its cliffhanger issue endings yeah feels like kind of reminds me of a like a brian k vaughn comic or something because he loves doing those cliffhangers too yeah yeah they're just these really foreboding kind of cliffhangers you know it's not the kind of cliffhanger where batman gets knocked off a skyscraper or something and you know (laughs) it's complex drama it's complex drama surrounding the internet interpersonal dynamics of the relationships of these characters right exactly. and it's even more complex because this is a survival for life and death right it's not just the drama of high school romance or you know popularity or whatever though like again this this is something where the stakes are that it is the very livelihoods of these characters 
Mm -hmm. I did want to point out to one other Frank Miller uh, sort of homage. Uh, I don't know what page this is on because I'm on Hoopla. It's page 62 on Hoopla, when they show Dan, Lex's friend, hunting down the kids, there's this one panel where you just see him in outline standing on a rooftop with an arrow. That oh, reminds yeah. me of a Frank Miller thing, too. <laughs> yeah. Heck, I feel like seeing it with the purple sky background and a guy holding a bow, it reminds me of uh, David Aha's Hawkeye. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if, if not Frank Miller, it kind of reminds me of something from the Turtles, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, too. <laughs> yeah. Not 100% sure. It's definitely but... got that noirish vibe to it. Yeah. Well, you ready to move on to the next chapter? Or issue? Sure, unless you have anything more to say about the B-52s. <laughs> <laughs> well, personally, I can't stand the B-52s, so I don't really have much to say about them to begin with. <laughs> You're not a fan of Love Shack? I, I find the guy's voice annoying. <laughs> I don't like that weird metallic robot voice thing that he does. Love Shack, baby! <laughs> Is that how that song goes? Well, I mean, I can't really... I can't. I thought it was a woman who was singing that song. No, no, he, he's definitely. I mean, really? Okay, I, I gotta listen really to it, it again. Yeah, the the girls are singing the the backgrounds for the song where they're going, "Love Shack, baby, Love Shack," and then he's he's singing the main part where he's 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 not even singing it. He it just sounds like he's speaking it in that high nasal robot voice of his mm -hmm. you know okay, okay where he's just like speaking the lines out loud really you you didn't remember that i feel like that's like one of the most prominent features of the song <laughs> i feel like all i really remember is the chorus i it's been a super long time since i've thought about that song honestly i haven't even thought about the b-52s in a while yeah i i think i know that song because i hate it <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to indie rock bands from Athens, I think the first band I always that always comes to mind is REM. So, oh I'm yeah, more, I'll take a, yeah, I'm, I'm a big REM fan for sure. Yeah, that's yeah, one of my yeah, favorite bands for sure. I, I would give up a thousand B52s for one REM any day. Yeah, fair enough. Yep. No further questions, Your Honor. We may proceed to the next issue. All right, Deadly Class issue twenty. In a journal entry, Marcus reflects on his life up to this point. He reflects on the circumstances that led him here, but also faces the reality of his hand in all of this. The decisions he made, both big and small, you can't blame everything on circumstance. In the end, the way that things ended with Maria were his fault. Saya and Willie are on the trail of the trio of Marcus, Billy, and Petra. The two have a moment to themselves to discuss the earlier events. Willie begins to question Saya's motives and the ease with which she can commit these murders. The conversation ends with, with Saya breaking it off with Willie. Marcus, Petra, and Billy take, take the downtime to swap stories and reminisce. Their time at King's Dominion wasn't all bad. There were good times too. For a brief moment, they seem like semi-normal teenagers laughing and bonding with one another. Kendall finds Stefan and informs him of Shabnam's plot to blackmail them. But Kendall decides that with Stefan's help, they're going to kill Shabnam 
and steal back the evidence he has on them. Shabnam, meanwhile, sits top of his throne, managing his newfound power. All the while, Kelly Troll manipulates Shabnam from behind the scenes, using his crush on her to influence him. Suddenly, an attack takes place, and Marcus springs into action. As attackers come from all sides, they question how anyone knew where they were at all. Billy's response makes Marcus suspicious. They split up, but as they do, Marcus tells Petra to watch out for Billy. Marcus takes on Victor, takes on Victor in an insane car battle. And an insane car battle breaks out. He manages to escape only to be cornered by Willie on a rooftop. There's some much needed contemplative moments in this story, in this issue. Absolutely. I think that, yeah, that scene that you summarized in the beginning of the issue where he gets a, Marcus gets a chance to catch his breath and take some time to jot down stuff in his journal. It gives us, it gives us the readers a chance to consider what's been going on in the story as he reminisces on all the things that have led up to this point. And I also got to say that the artwork for those scenes is pretty spectacular. I don't know what technique that was that was Craig used in these little flashback scenes where Marcus is journaling and thinking about Maria, but that's some gorgeous stuff right there, man. Yeah, it almost looks yeah. like watercolor or something, but it, it could just be some kind of ink wash. I'm not exactly sure and uh, how he did it. It's like really pretty bright yellow. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful stuff. Oh yeah, this is a, a side note, but I noticed every time you were saying Stephen's name, you kept pronouncing it Stefan. Is that because it's the playoffs and we're rooting for Steph Curry? It's not Stefan. I could have swore it was Stefan. I don't know. I mean, most people who uh, spell their name like that pronounce it Stephen. Is it S-T-E-P-H? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not most people. <laughs> <laughs> Just like I mean, you I might be biased, but Debris? I think I'm better than most people. <laughs> <laughs> so if that's the case, my way is right. <laughs> I like it, man. I like it. I yeah. thought you were do doing one of your bits, like how you pronounce debris, Debris. No, no, that was that was a sincere moment right there. Okay. Because okay. I'm accustomed to calling people who spell their name S D E V E N Steven. So, you know, I I I actually make the P H sound. I. I just how I just how I was raised. <laughs> <laughs> interesting, interesting. Right. Yeah, but it's a really great opening scene here. It's it's kind of heartbreaking actually, because well, granted, okay, up to this point, Marcus has been a pretty selfish little jerk, and it's again, I, I guess it's par for the course for a teenage boy who who looks at who looks back at these relationships and and realizes only too late that he had a good thing, but because he wanted to have it all or because he wanted to give himself an excuse to not enjoy 
this thing that he had with with this young woman, this relationship that he had, uh, because he wanted someone else. For him to look back at that and realize, oh man, I I had a good thing and I just messed it up. Like it's hard to feel bad for him, but there's there is something like if anything, I feel bad for Maria, I guess. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. <clears throat> right. You have and, any and thoughts it, on the scene between Saya and Willie? It's it it feels pretty abrupt. I, I I do feel like it's another bit of evidence that we can put into the into the compartment for did Saya ever really like Willie to begin with? Was she mm-hmm. just using him for all along? Because it just really feels like she gave up on him way too easily, right? Because it really just ends up over the course of one page, that one page, that one discussion. Then it, it isn't even a huge long dense discussion between the two it's him looking at her or it's him talking to her and talking about how she's continuously laying this uh guilt trip on him the sense that he's unable to perform when he needs to (laughs) is that supposed to be a metaphor for something (laughs) (laughs) not at all not at all but Willie kind of has a point here and and you know to go back to the idea of what kind of school is a school for assassins Willie actually shows that this one thing that seems like it's been a weakness this whole time and this one thing that he's been hiding against and uh this one element of his character that he's been resisting this whole time he he finally just comes out and says it and he says and killing our friends that's easy for you why is that why is it so important for you to graduate you know uh, and she doesn't even give him an explanation. Yeah, uh, like she just she just rushes the the couple. Yeah, the couple of panels is he grabs her by the hand, just trying to get an answer from her, and she just pulls her hand away, and she just goes, "We're done, Willie. I'm through carrying you. You go do whatever you have to." And then she goes off. Yeah, it's pretty cold. It's really cold, but but there's still something about it where. Again, if we play devil's advocate and look at that as if we if we look at that as a moment where Saya has been, you know, quote unquote helping Willie throughout all this, and from her perspective, if that's the response that she gets, and he and and she finally sees him for what he is and what his potential is, and she just realizes that he's never going to be able to do what any of us are going to do here then to some degree it's it's breaking the connection between the two of them so that she can continue to do what she has to do and maybe maybe even understanding that if something happens to him that sense of connection between them won't ever won't be there anymore right mm-hmm. well, again this is just me playing devil's advocate because at this point, it's still hard to say where Saya's loyalties really lie, or or really what her motivations are altogether, right? She's very mysterious. But she's very mysterious, but it's hard. As much as so many of her actions point to her being just as much of a killer, being more cold-blooded than any of the other kids, there's 
there's also a sense of hesitancy there that makes you wonder, like, is she really as cold as she is projecting herself to be? Like, I don't know. It's hard to say. Yeah, just got to keep reading to find out. Totally, totally. I did enjoy... The thing that... Yeah, I was just going to say, there is something that happens at the end of the next issue that I, I think like goes a little bit more in terms of showing us how cold she is, but we'll get there when we get there. Exactly. <clears throat> I do like the moment, uh, the moment of downtime that the, that Billy, Marcus and Petra have. Amidst yeah, we need chaos. it. Cause so much of the, so much of this trade has been a bunch of action and running away from people. Exactly. Exactly. But I think the contrast is pretty welcome and pretty great. Cause Granted, these are kids at a school for assassins. They do a lot of really hardcore drugs or whatever, but still, just giving them a moment to just swap stories with each other about wild, crazy things that happen, funny things, and having these moments of just honesty with one another where the stakes aren't high and where the intensity isn't pumped up at 11 it it does something to humanize them it does something to bring us down for a little bit and it gives us something to invest in these three right mm-hmm. yeah yeah the the stories are all pretty entertaining too i mean the the marcus story about being high at the party is just typical dumb teenage drunk but i thought yeah. the the story that petra shared about her and victor was pretty there was something pretty, you know, teenage and teenager stupid about it, but there was also something pretty funny too about yeah. how uh, yeah. she made out with him and, and whatnot. And then it just gets uh, Billy laughing when she. He could not perform. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then what she talks about is, you know, instead of making a big thing of it, she just decides. They just decide to cuddle for the night and just to like be with each other. And then the next day he goes out and he tells everybody that she she did all this stuff, blah, 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 <laughs> which is pretty awful. <laughs> he, he goes around telling everyone that he didn't sleep with her because she has feminine hygiene issues. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, it's, these are things that you could imagine happening to real teenagers, real stories that real teenagers tell mm-hmm. and just how they would really behave. Again, I'm not an expert on that. I'm well beyond those years by double, but <laughs> you know, from what I remember of being a teenager, it felt, it felt believable. Yeah. Teenagers are all a bunch of horrible little rascals. So <laughs> there's no doubt that they would, Whoa, 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 whoa. You like used that. the R word? You said rascals? <laughs> we might have children listening. <laughs> oh, oh dear me. Oh, I must sit down. Oh, you better be careful, man. If you, if you clutch those pearls too hard, they may break and you'll slip and fall on them. <laughs> Drew, I am vexed. Lord. Oh, Lord me. Rascals, you say. <laughs> uh, 
Oh dear. <laughs> uh, yeah, but the way the story ends with just Billy with Marcus just giving this Billy this great big hug, and he's just like, you know what else I learned? Cynicism is the refuge of the coward. Sincer sincerity, man, that shit is hard. And he's just looking at him, and he's like, I love you, Billy. And yeah. Like out of context, just on this in in this one moment, that that gave me some joy. You know, just yeah. seeing two friends just genuinely liking each other. I was like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Out of context, it's a shockingly wholesome scene. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Within the and, context, you're just kind of waiting for something awful to happen. <laughs> yeah. 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 Because it's still, at this point in the back of my mind, I was still wondering who was going to betray Marcus first, Petra or Billy. Like, Yeah. I just yeah. knew that this moment of just this peaceful moment. You can't moment, really fully enjoy it for yeah, what it is, right? It, it wasn't going to last. <laughs> last. Yeah. 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 And then there's also the scene where we see Shabnam. He's he's sitting atop his throne, but it's it's this moment where all the kids are coming to him and they're vying for whatever concessions they can get from him. But we see that Kelly troll. I don't really even know her last name. She's over there whispering things into his ears. She's really the one running it right now. It feels like <laughs> it, it definitely lays the foundation for what the, what the dynamic of their relationship is like. And, you know, from a top down perspective, looking at this, and how everything's playing out. It feels like up to this point, Shabnam has been playing chess with all these other kids and he's he's running the roost. But really in this moment, you're seeing that if he's running everything, then she runs him. Yeah, she definitely has one over him just because for whatever reason, he's in love with her. And there's just something... Poison hormones are stupid. Yeah, exactly. There's something really <laughs> stupid about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the narration during that scene is so funny, too. I mean, uh, the fourth panel on page 84 of the trade, uh, it's the scene where... It's just the moment where Shabnam is laying down one of his decrees. He says, the spirit squad will get nothing. But then the narration says and so he waited and he ate the six packs of hostess snowballs sated his nerves for a time but that warmth was fleeting it's like there, there's just something ridiculous so about, yeah it's so dramatic for something for a guy just eating something so silly and trivial uh, and the way that his face looks he's like so stoic but He's like sweating bullets there. You know? yeah. <laughs> There's, there is something kind of comical about his, the way his face looks because he looks like Charlie Brown or something. Or <laughs> <laughs> He looks like a kid version of the Kingpin with hair. Okay, okay. I can see that, I guess. <laughs> and glasses, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Huh. The action sequence when Victor finds the hideout and then Marcus tries to run away and gets chased that's another really great action sequence in terms of how well drawn and laid out it is it's just another testament to Wes Craig's 
skills as an artist, man. Like yeah, there's just yeah. an excitement to it. It's uh, a car chase where a guy is running around chasing Marcus, and the dude has an assault rifle. It's it's wild, man. It's some wild spectacle. I don't know if the tenderloin has a hill that steep, but <laughs> it's, uh, it's I grew still up exciting. in the tenderloin, so. I think if you go up like to Post or Polk, like they don't have the biggest hills in the city, but they're decently big hills, I guess. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, the one thing that I wanted to mention, but in, but then in, there's that scene where the cop gets in his car and, and he's like, they're headed east on Geary. Oh, I don't I don't well, remember Geary having a, a slope that that's steep. True. That's a pretty Gary big doesn't. incline. Yeah, Geary doesn't. I'm looking at it right now. And there's also, uh, if you notice, uh, on page 90 of the trade, in the first panel, when you look at the car uh, in that panel, there's you can if you look in the background of that scene where the car is heading down the hill with Victor on the hood, in yeah. the background there's something there's a store called Burroughs Firearms. Uh -huh. I don't know if the laws were different back in the 80s, but nowadays. There isn't anywhere in the city where you can actually buy a gun uh, legally. There aren't any gun stores. I don't know if that yeah. was different in the 80s, though. Yeah. But that, that was just something that jumped out at me, being uh, someone who doesn't remember 1988 with perfect clarity. I guess if we had to pick a place that was close enough to uh, the Tenderloin, based on those pictures. Some place where you can make some tender coin. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I don't. Why, man? Why? I'm trying uh, to bait you into going on a diatribe against how much you hate train. Uh, if I am willing to give up a thousand B-52s for one REM, I am willing to give up. I I, I would give up. Every train throughout every reality for one B-52. <laughs> Whoa, okay. Okay. Every version of train in every reality for one B-52. <laughs> so the B-52s are better than train. By far. <laughs> nice. <laughs> now I'm looking at it like, uh, yeah, I, I think if you go further up, maybe further up on Hyde or something. There are some hills there, maybe. Is but, that still yeah, considered anyways, part of the Tenderloin, though? I think nowadays they call it the Tender Knob. Yeah, I thought that was like Knob Hill. Yeah, because it's Tenderloin slash Knob Hill, so they call it the Tender Knob. But, that just sounds weird. Well, Tenderloin sounds kind of gross anyways, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, no real winners here. <laughs> there ain't. There ain't. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like Knob Hill is, I guess, technically close, close enough. Uh, like, especially if they're in car, in a car and just kind of driving around. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be pretty dangerous but, to be speeding that fast in that area. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to mention about the fight, and I didn't really put this in the synopsis, but at one point, Dan, the one who's trying to avenge Lex, 
is chasing them down and he sees them from across a rooftop and he's about to fire an arrow like an explosive mm. arrow into yeah. their into their right into their uh building but Saya beheads out him and straight up yeah straight up beheads him so you know for those of you who are following along if you're wondering what happened to Dan that's what happened to Dan <laughs> yeah a pretty ignominious end to little Dan here yeah but it's also yeah. another scene that makes you wonder why did Saya just save Marcus and his friends I don't yeah. know, man. Well, okay. The way that I took it from there was because I think at one point, Master Lin, when he was threatening them, he basically said, "If you do, if you specifically do not bring them in, oh, like, okay, I'm gonna like do stuff to you, right?" So she can't let someone else get the credit. Exactly. Exactly. Got it. Okay. That that was that, my understanding that makes sense. of the situation. That makes sense. Yeah. You know what so, I just noticed too in that scene where she uh, kills him, the the sound effects in the background of some of those panels on that page, it's interesting because they're kind of cut off at the at the edges like that uh splash I guess when the head hits the ground and all you know all the blood splashes, the H is kind of cut off it bleeds into the into the panel border and then when she hears the gunshots in the distance. Some of the bang bangs are are cut off. That's a pretty yeah. nice trick, just to indicate, you know, there's some distance from, you know, that she's hearing stuff in the distance. I don't oh, know. Oh, I hadn't even thought of that. That's kind of cool. Stylish, yeah. Huh. Wild. Anything else about this issue? The final thing that stands out to me is that final page cliffhanger. It's just another one of those pages where it's like, hmm. Yeah, I can't stop reading it now. I got to find out yeah. what happens next, you know? It's a really good BKV-style cliffhanger where it's, it's the emotional thing, you know? Like, the emotional impact. You're, you've kind of been waiting for the next face-to-face between these two characters, and now we get it. Even though Willie is pointing a submachine gun at Marcus, it doesn't... F- feel like he's actually going to shoot him but i think the anticipation is just what are they going to say to each other you know after all the stuff that's happened that's yeah the, the character drama that the cliffhanger hinges on that's what totally grabs me right 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 it's it's investing you in the plot of it all but it's also investing you in the emotional outcome mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely well, that being said, should we go to the next issue? Yes, we should. Our listeners a little bit of closure. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Deadly Class issue 21. Hiding out, Billy and Petra have their own heart to heart. Billy talks about a conversation he had with his father where he admits that he was never wanted. Yet in spite of that treatment, Billy regrets killing his father and thinks there was a chance that someday his father could have changed. Petra reaffirms his decision to kill his father, letting Billy know he was a bad person. She then tells her own story about her parents, her parents' cult and being forced to fend for herself and how on her 11th birthday, she found a jar with her mother's eyes in the fridge. Her father used that as a teaching moment to show her how to not fear death by embracing it. 
the final thought she leaves Billy with is, with everything we've been through, how are we supposed to end up any other way? Back on the rooftop, Willie and Marcus square off. Marcus pleads for his life, but Willie lets him know that if he doesn't kill him, Master Lin will eradicate everyone and everything he holds dear. Marcus makes an appeal to his humanity and to his friendship. And they finally get to, to the topic of how they became the way they are, their mutual interest in Saya. But it turns out that the only reason Willie confessed his intentions to Saya was because, because with Marcus's love triangle between him, between him, Maria, and Saya, he was just tired of being left behind by his friend. As they talk it out, Willie is at his breaking point, being forced to kill his cousin and realizing that Sayo was willing to manipulate him to kill, in, in order to kill, is too much for him to bear. He isn't cut out for King's Dominion and seeing no other choice, Willie puts the gun to his own head. Back at the school, Shabnam has has sent the majority of his forces to hunt for Marcus, leaving him and Kelly vulnerable. As Kendall and Stefan strike, as Stefan and, Stefan and Kendall strike, as Kendall makes his demands, Stefan betrays him, shooting him in the back of the head. As Petra and Billy prepare to make their next move, Petra drops a bottle of poisonous gas and traps Billy in the room. Petra, it turns out, is the mole. As Willie holds the gun to his head, Marcus tells him that there's another way. They can all they can all run off together, leave everything behind. Willie agrees and the two friends reconcile. Meanwhile, Billy enters his death throes as Petra re-enters the room to watch him and to watch him and make eye contact. She is now not afraid. As Marcus and Willie are about to leave, Willie is shot by Victor from another rooftop. Victor is joined by Polly Redshirt. Marcus drags Willie's body to safety, but it's too late. As Victor comes over to finish the job, Marcus runs for it. And as he exits the building, he runs right into Saya's blade. She whispers something inaudibly in, into his ears, some final words to him. As he collapses, the last thing he sees is Saya's face covered in tears. And Marcus, Marcus's mind drifts back to the day his parents died, and he gets to relive an alternate version of that day where they aren't killed. Yeah, this was a pretty wild issue, man. Just seemed like so many things happened, especially in terms of people dying. <laughs> like surprisingly, I'm assuming that Billy is dead. I'm assuming that Willie is dead. Yeah, I would assume yeah. that Marcus is dead, but I feel like I've seen a cover of a future issue where he's alive. So I think he's still so alive. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> but if yeah, it, it I would be pretty surprised if it turned out that Billy and Willie somehow survived what what happened to them because it looks like they're dead. Yeah. Like, he gets ran through with a blade right in his chest. It's hard to really imagine that there's a way out of that. <laughs> yeah, with Marcus, I, I don't know how... Are they just going to... 
I don't know, man. Like I, I would assume that he survives because okay, okay, he's okay. the main character. Hear me out. Hear me out. Uh huh. Nanites. Nanites. <laughs> they inject some nanites <laughs> that replenish all the blood he's missing. <laughs> yeah. Hear me out. Hear me out. Cryogenically frozen. <laughs> and, and he w- he wakes up in the year uh, 2018. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. See, see, you got it. You got it, bud. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, at this point, I really don't know what to expect in the story. So, it's just shocking to see that the most of the main characters have uh, taken what seem to be fatal blows. Yeah, yeah. Well, in my read-through of... Rick Remender's Remen Year of Comics. <laughs> Hashtag Remen Year. Uh, I was telling Drew in a conversation we had offline where I feel like one of one of Rick Remender's pet uh, themes or pet devices, plot devices, is he likes to establish what the ideal ending is for a lot of us for for his characters for the readers but i feel that he ultimately takes that all away in order to give us the ending that we do get but with a greater truth so the characters end up having to give up their hopes for whatever the their main objective is whatever the macguffin is that they happen to be tracking down and they willingly give it up in order to seek the greater truth of their lives, whether it's good or bad. And I, I do think that this is another example of that. Granted, uh, like you said, I don't know if Marcus is actually dead. So, but based on the way that that final scene plays, plays out, it, if if he has in fact died, then you know, it's consistent with my viewing of Rick Remender's works throughout other series that I've read. So, yeah. Do you think that... So so you're, you think he, that he is dead? Uh, like you, it's hard for me to imagine that he found a way around it or that he survived it. So if he does survive it, do you think that it would be some pretty cheap like a, some kind of cheap bailout he wrote uh, himself into a corner made us think that the main character was dead and then comes up with some ridiculous reason as to how he survived it hear me out hear me out hear me out evil twin <laughs> uh, i got a million of these <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I haven't really read any of the. I haven't really read any of the uh, back cover summaries of any of the future trades or anything. Yeah. But I feel like just looking at covers of future issues, like, not that I studied the covers or, or really looked at them, but I feel like I've seen them in passing when other people have posted them or, you know, when you're scrolling through 
uh, a sale and you look at the covers of the different trades on the website, you know, sometimes you'll see volume 12 of Deadly Class and or some other volume. I feel like I've seen Marcus on the cover, but I, I could be wrong. And, I, you know, my memory is not that great because I'm getting old and stuff. Yeah. Well, here's here's an idea. And this this reminds me of something that you talked about when you were discussing uh when you were discussing recommenders on Kenny X Force, you were talking about Apocalypse and how Apocalypse mm-hmm. in that series isn't really a character as much as he is a presence throughout the story. Something yeah. that haunts over over the X Force like a Paul, right? Yeah. And what if what if Marcus is dead, but he is still felt, his presence is still felt throughout the series because, you know, because he was such a main, big part of the series and such a connecting factor for Saya or whatever characters are left over, right? To the point where his death is something that they have to live with and ultimately that his death ultimately ends up being impetus for something really big happening that would be some really ballsy storytelling i think it would also be extremely fascinating like if that's the case that's what i would want to see i'm not sure we're gonna get it i'm thinking about who marcus has affected in the story so far and it kind of feels like they're all dead (laughs) yeah other than saya like the only other characters that would really have much interest in marcus would be victor uh shabnam well maybe the troll master lin i guess but it's like all of those people are characters that don't necessarily have too much invested in Marcus other than wanting to kill him or yeah I don't know if Master Lin wants to kill him but he wants to catch him at least and it's main it mainly put I'm everything pretty sure Master Lin wanted to kill him <laughs> That's true well was there a reason why he wanted um Saya and Willie to wait. Did he want them to to kill Marcus and bring back a corpse, or did he just want them to bring him back so he could deal with Marcus? My understanding of, or my reading of it, was that he wanted to kill. He wanted them to kill him because he was their responsible, or they were the yeah, ones who let in, him go. Yeah, in his calculus okay. of the situation, that. They are responsible for his impudence and for everything going on here. So they kind of owe him. Okay, got it. So then of all the characters that Marcus might have left an impact on, pretty much all of them just wanted to kill him. And Saya well, was the one who yeah. uh, you know ran him through with the sword. So, But she's also the only one of those characters who had something that was... Uh, you know, like more of an emotional connection with him. So it feels like if he is dead, then the rest of the series moving forward it would put the onus on Saya to really deal with the ramifications of 
the specter of yeah. Marcus. Yeah. And that there there's definitely something fascinating about that, but it I don't know, it just feels like it doesn't feel like that's what would happen, you know? But who knows, maybe maybe I'll be wrong, man. Maybe maybe someone out there who's already read the entire series is listening to me laughing at my outrageous predictions. <laughs> <laughs> what fools these mortals be. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the thing I was going to say or mention was, you also remember, we're not even sure that Maria's dead, remember? Yeah. So it's like there's that. Going back, to, uh, going back to Born Again, there is no corpse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and based on Saya's reaction, there was something there. Uh, like, I don't know exactly what she said to him, but, you know, for the sake of drama, it, it was definitely left ambiguous, right? And the fact Actually, that... you the, know, on the, on the digital version, you can zoom in. Yeah, but even if you zoom in, I, I tried it on to zoom in. You can't really read it. If you zoom in all the way and hold it up yeah. to a mirror, you can read what she says. Yeah, what does it say? It says... <laughs> you think you can fool me, sucker? You ain't got me. You ain't got me. <laughs> you don't know me. Man, I just wanted you to to go through all the trouble of doing that. That's all. <laughs> I know. I know you. I know what you bout. <laughs> Uh, but anyways, <laughs> um, yeah, so the fact that she, there's there's this new plot thread of what her last words to him were, and the fact that the last thing that he sees when she die when he dies, you know, supposedly dies, is her, her face, face in tears. Yeah. yeah. Like, for someone who puts up this facade of being this cold-hearted, cold-blooded killer, like Why is she that crying? makes you question. Yeah, what's up with that? I don't know. It's like Terminator Two said. <laughs> I now know why you cry. <laughs> Famous words from Terminator Two. Yeah, now I I really <laughs> want to rewatch that. You have reinvigorated the spark for T Two Judgment Day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know why I remember that line though? <laughs> why? I think when I was a kid, I was uh, bored, so I bought. I I forget how I came across it, but I ended up getting these Terminator Two trading cards. This was in the period of time where they were making trading cards for everything, right? So it's mm -hmm. the cards were scenes from the movie, like just stills from the movie, but on a card. And then when you turn it around, it has like bits of dialogue from the movie. Or whatever, right? And the card, what I opened a pack, and this might have been the only pack of Terminator 2 cards I ever got. And I don't even remember why I got them, but it was uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger talking to uh, what's his name? Uh, a young, uh, what's the kid's name? John Connor. Yeah, young John Connor, as he's about to go down into the hot lava because, you know, 
they they save the world, but there's still one last remaining bit of Terminator technology, which is oh, by the way, spoilers for Terminator 2 Judgment Day. <laughs> <laughs> they save the world, but there's still one remaining piece of Terminator tech, and it's the Terminator himself yep. that was sent to protect John Connor. So he goes into the lava, but before he does, he touches John Connor's face, he wipes a tear off it, and he goes, I now know why you cry. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very touching moment even though we're laughing at it <laughs> it's uh it's in the uh it's probably in the top top three greatest moments from arnold schwarzenegger's body of work <laughs> yeah it's gotta be yeah. it's up there with total recall Consider that a divorce. I love that line. <laughs> that is such a good one-liner. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, well, here we are at the end. Were there any other scenes or moments from this chapter you wanted to, or issue that you wanted to discuss? Do you think there is any chance whatsoever that Billy or Willie survived? Because uh, the way I read it, Billy to me is dead. I, I can't yeah. understand how Billy could have survived that. And then like the way that the art is drawn, when Petra looks in his eyes, one of the panels, uh, there's a little skull drawn in his eye. And I just kind of read that as, yeah, that means he's, he's definitely dead. dead. Yeah. He's dead, she said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then with Willie... He gets shot pretty badly. There's a ton of blood. And when Marcus is trying to drag him and telling him to, to get up. He looks pretty dead, too. He looks pretty dead. Like, his eyes are he open, his gone. mouth is open, but he just can't yeah. do anything. And then we see a scene where uh, Victor sees the body. And we get a picture from Victor's point of view where Willie definitely looks dead. Uh, so I, I think I just assume that he's dead. But do yeah. you think there's any chance that he could have been saved through time travel or evil clones or <laughs> it was an imposter or something? <laughs> With time travel, there's always a way. <laughs> uh, I I would like to think that Rick Remender is too good for that sort of thing with uh with Deadly Class in particular because it's so rooted in uh you know reality even though it's at a school for assassins but <laughs> hey remember but, uncanny avengers man he made the entire planet literally explode and he used time travel to help <laughs> fix it <laughs> yeah but they ain't the avengers uh marcus is far from an avenger <laughs> yeah that's true that's true yeah well, I, how about this man how about this that uh lsd trip or whatever it was that marcus was talking about in the earlier chapter he's been he's still been on that trip this entire time so everything that we're reading is part of that dream it was a dream all along <laughs> <laughs> oh man i would lose so much respect for him if that was in, in fact the case i really would i'd just be like oh i thought you were so much better than this <laughs> oh man yeah, I really don't know how this story is going to play out after this. I'm really interested in it. Yeah, same here. Same here. Uh, like 
I was saying this for me, this is the volume where the the switch flipped. And even though I was reading it, you know, not necessarily just for the podcast, but even though I was reading it and I was invested, this was the first chapter where I was like, oh man, I I kind of am looking forward to reading the next volume just to know what happens. Cause heck, I I'm even looking forward to just reading it even though uh, the next volume that we're going to cover isn't going to be until another month, you know? That's how tempting does that, it is. Yeah, does that mean you're going to read volume five right now or right after we get off this podcast? Uh, no, no. I will I will restrain myself as in a way that a man who in his 40s has not had a date in <laughs> in years... I'll, if I have found a way to live with that, I can find a way to live with this. <laughs> that that is heavy. You're telling me I lived that <laughs> life. <laughs> Who are you talking to? Ah. <laughs> uh, uh. I think one of the things about Deadly Class that comes through even stronger in this volume as the culmination of everything we've read up to this point is the idea of the comic as a metaphor for high school. Like starting from the very first chapter of this volume with issue 17, when we have those scenes of all these cliques grouping together and teaming up and hunting down all the misfits and outcasts and and whatnot, you know, everybody hates everyone else. Sometimes you find some friends, but you're always wondering, are they really my friends? Can can I really trust these people? And you're never really sure exactly where you fit in. And you tend to put yourself, you put your guard up so you don't have to be hurt by other people that you might be too close to. And I feel like viewing the story from that lens it's actually a really grim outlook on teenage life and, and high school in general. There's definitely a lot of teen angst in this comic. And all that kind of angst, it does ring true. Like it's definitely genuine angst that I think a lot of young people experience in life. It's just that in the story, all of that angst is massively amplified because it's like a school murder. for assassins. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they literally murder each other. They don't just yeah. talk about it or, uh, you know, start nasty rumors or bully each other or cyber yeah. bully each other or just, you know, yeah, generally yeah. be jerks to each other. They literally try and kill each other. And it's just so uh, it's like high school to the nth degree, basically. Yeah. Like when they tell rumors, it's 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 in the service of killing another student. <laughs> Yeah, or manipulating or blackmailing somebody into killing somebody else. Yeah, exactly, exactly. A couple other yeah. things I noticed in this comic in relation to the San Francisco setting. Did you notice that they misspelled Daily City? How did they spell it? They spelled D-A-I? it. Yeah, D A I L Y when it's supposed to be D A L Y. Not cool. Not cool. <laughs> I know. I can't believe they didn't fix it for the trade. That's like Maybe. such a basic thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
then there's also uh, a scene I, in the last issue of this when Marcus and Willie are before they get shot up and they're they're talking about how to escape San Francisco. They talk about going to the West Portal BART station and then from there they can take Highway 1 and hitchhike to San Jose. <laughs> I thought about that and that that's one of those things that just took me out of it cuz that's number 1 there is no BART that's at not how West that Portal. works. <laughs> yeah, there's no BART at West Portal. There isn't. That's true. And even if there was, what does that have to do with Highway 1, which is on the coast? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. and then to take Highway 1 to go to San Jose is just a long route because you have to go back inland to get to San Jose. You can't just it's take Highway 1 efficient. straight down. Yeah, it's not efficient. <laughs> so I question the use of geography in, in, in this series, man. <laughs> well, that's how we know that Marcus is going to survive. Alternate universes. <laughs> okay. So in, in their reality, they can take the Bart at West Portal to go to Highway 1 and hitchhike to San Jose. In their reality, getting stabbed through the chest isn't immediate death. <laughs> there you go. Okay. We figured yeah. it out, dude. Yeah. they In their reality, they have a cure for getting stabbed through the chest. You just take a pill for it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Uh, you have any final thoughts, Albert? Uh, did I have any? I don't know. I, I I think what you said was apt. I think it was uh, a solid assessment of the high school drama of it all. Uh, I I think what I said earlier pretty much sums it up for me, which is I just want to know. I'm chomping at the bit to know how it ends, but mm -hmm. you know because I'm dedicated. I'm I'm willing to to do this right. Sounds good. Yeah. Um yeah, I I will say that going into it as a series that I don't know what I felt anything for, if I felt anything at all or other than oh Rick Remender's name that I recognize and I I know he's he's solid like after this uh, I'm I'm tempted to go go out there and buy the library editions. I, I I'm gonna I was holding off on it because I I've got way too many books and my library is getting full. But this could be something that I I I might want to get. Nice man. We'll keep yeah. an eye out for cheap copies. For sure, for sure. Well, if there's nothing else, if anyone has any comments or questions and would like to contribute to the conversation, by all means, please do hit us up at between the gutters podcast at gmail.com or dm us on our instagram or you can tweet at us and we would love to hear what you have to say if you're listening to us on something you know like share and subscribe all that stuff that i hate saying and doing but we need you to do anyways because <laughs> we're just trying to get up there in numbers we we want to be popular we're just we're, we're we're high school kids that never made it we we're living in our bubble and we're just trying to make up for lost time. So do this for us. <laughs> we would greatly appreciate it because we were unpopular high school kids and we would want to be popular adults. <laughs> just show us what it's like. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. All right. Sounds good. Next week, we're going to talk about a comic that 
I haven't read before. I think you might have read uh, part of it so far, but we're going to be talking about Marjorie Finnegan, Temporal Criminal by Garth Ennis and Garan Suzuka. That is a book published by AWA. Yeah, I've read a few AWA books. I haven't read Marjorie Finnegan, but that's the one we'll be covering on the podcast next week. So I'm interested to see what it's going to be. Yeah, yeah. All right. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll catch you next time. Peace out. Bye, everybody. <laughs>